0: Welcome to New Books and Film. I am your host, Joel Cherney. Today I will be speaking with Don Nunley about his book, Steve McQueen, Le Mans in the Rearview Mirror. The book was published in 2017 by Dalton Watson Fine Books and was co-authored by Marshall Terrell. As a prop man in Hollywood, Don worked on many famous films which allowed him to know many screen legends. However, The most interesting film he worked on was Le Mans, a film that takes place during the famous 24-hour race in France. The book contains many fascinating details about the making of the film and includes rare photos that illustrate Don's career. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Don Nunley. Hi Don, I'm glad to speak with you. Well, thank you, Joel, I
1: appreciate the opportunity to tell you about our new book.
0: Well, your book details the making of Steve McQueen's film that portrays the 24-hour race in Le Mans. While the movie was largely panned at its release, it has become more highly regarded over time. However, unlike some authors I've talked to who write and only about films, you actually had a career in films. What was your main job in Hollywood?
1: Well, I started at 20 years old uh as a swing gang member in the prop department at universal studios and um i I eventually became a prop master and a prop master is the guy in charge of all the stuff in front of the camera except the actors he crosses over with wardrobe he crosses over with transportation Uh, so the production designer provides the sets or the locations and then the prop master takes over so it's a it's a very job and uh I really enjoyed my career. I was 30 years making movies.
0: Now, How did you decide you wanted to work in Hollywood? You talk about it in the book.
1: Yeah, I um, needed a summer job. I was finishing up a two-year college, Pierce College in the San Fernando Valley. And uh, I was going enrolled and set to go to UCLA that fall. But like most young people at that point, uh, we wanted to make some money. And the studio business was extremely busy uh, because of the, uh, really, the start of television about that time. So the feature films were making feature films, and the studios were making as much TV as they could. Uh, My father had worked in the business for many years at that point at Universal Studios, and he was able to intercede for me and get me a temporary job in the prop department because they were actually hiring people off the street. They couldn't fulfill the numbers they needed through the union. So I got my foot in the door and got my 30 days in, joined the union, and decided to work a year before I went back to school. Well, normally what happens, you end up liking what you're doing or decide you want to go back to school, and that's what I did, so I stayed in the film business.
0: Did you feel like, um, <clears throat> I'm assuming you knew more about the business because of your father, Um you ended up doing things similar to the kind of work your father did in Hollywood? Well,
1: I did exactly what he did. Uh, I became a prop master. He was a prop master at Universal Studios. He started back in the day. He did not give screen credits to prop masters. So he did amazing films that his name didn't appear on. Um, he did all the Abbott, Luke Costello pictures, the uh, Mom Bach Kettle pictures. Frankenstein.
0: Whoops. That's okay. It's got a bell. That yeah, was on my end. Don't worry up. about it. Okay. So you did Evan um, Costello, including Evan Costello, meet Frankenstein?
1: Exactly. And I, I, got a chance to visit a few sets with him while, while I was growing up. I visited that picture with, got a chance to meet Bud Abbott Luke Costello, Bella Lugosi, and, and, uh, uh, let's see, oh, uh, Lon Chaney, Jr., who played the Wolfman. Um, I got a chance to visit the set of The Creature of the Black Lagoon. It was pretty exciting stuff. I was 8 or 10 years old. But you don't forget those kind of things, especially when you get a chance to lay down and drag in his coffin.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's the, that was the period of time. And then going forward, as you point out, once television came along after World War II, um, there were – as you say, there were double issues. There was the issue of having to make television shows, which started to be needed in, in great numbers. But then also Hollywood had to make some changes in the way they made films because they were losing audiences to television. and so the the spectacles and the big big budgets and big films became more important during that period to try to make sure that people continued to uh, go to the movies.
1: Yeah, the studios were kind of running scared, as you said. They didn't know if people would ever go out of their homes again because of TV. Um, And my father was making, because he was so well positioned and liked at Universal, they gave him a lot of big movies to do, a lot of responsibility. Pictures like Spartacus, The Ugly American, The Warlords. Um, Big, big, big budget pictures. And uh, at that time, because of the lack of of personnel, uh, it was easier for a young person like myself to move up in the ranks. Um, so I became a prop master at age 24. And at the time I was the youngest guy ever to become a prop master because the average age of prop master at that time was in his fifties. And I can't say I knew very much, but it was all I needed was the card and the, uh, fortitude to go out and try to get a job. And that I did. And I was very fortunate because I got, a lot of good films early, and uh, my career rose pretty quick. From uh, a set dressing crew member to a prop master was like almost overnight. If you think about it, just a few years.
0: Yeah, you do go into depth about what a prop. You know, we think prop master. If the the te- the words probably. You know, the average person would get a basic idea, but there's much more to it than just placing things. The The continuity aspect you mentioned in a lot of detail, I mean, you were the person who had to make sure that scenes matched up from from shots to shots so that uh, when they came to editing, they didn't have to worry about that kind of thing. It was, you see, you had to work with a lot of different people, but you also had to have an incredible attention to detail.
1: That was part of the intrigue and the reason I liked the job. Uh, it was always different every day. Every film was totally different from the last film. You go from a Western to a science fiction picture, for instance. I went from A Little Big Man, the film with Dustin Hoffman, directed by Arthur Finn, uh, to Le Mans. Now, From an 1855 period Western to a 1971 race was pretty exciting stuff.
0: So let's talk a little bit about Steve McQueen, since obviously the the movie was he's the subject of you know of the book and also you know as it relates to the movie. Unfortunately, since he died, what is it now? Thirty seven years ago. I'm trying to remember doing my math. Is at twenty seven? Forty seven. Yeah, thirty seven.
1: Thirty
0: seven years he ago. Forty,
1: 40 he, when we did the movie, and
0: fifty when he died. Right. He died ten years after the film came out, in in 1980. And he's probably not as well known these days, except for major. You know, you have to be a almost a film historian or someone who's interested in those kind of you know older films to probably remember him very well. But I, you know, I'm old enough to remember when Steve McQueen, um, you know, he was. You talk about people in Hollywood being larger than life. Steve McQueen was harder, was always larger than life from the way he was always portrayed in. And he was
1: at that. I'm sorry. At that time, he was the number one box office draw in the world. So he was at the top of the mountain.
0: So one of you 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 had some experience with working with him, obviously at, at the time you made this mil, Film, right? This was not the first Steve McQueen film you worked on, right?
1: Well, it was the first film. I, oh. I worked over at four-star television for a while, and I worked on the uh, set of Wanted Dead or Alive. Oh, okay, so
0: first and film. I first
1: met Steve there in the yeah, mid-60s. And, but I didn't, we didn't have a relationship. I wasn't pretty. I was not the prop master. I was just one of the extra brooms, as we say. Mm-hmm. And I was introduced to Steve, but not in a formal fashion, more of a, I, how are you, not at the head uh, recognition. But, uh, of course, on Le Mans, uh, when you're a prop master, you work extremely close with the actors. You really develop a relationship and a trust, because the prop master has to rely, or the actor has to rely on the prop master's knowledge of the event. Most of them don't know as much as you do, uh, although I have to say McQueen knew a lot more about racing than I ever will. <laughs> uh, I came into Le Mans having never even seen a race like that. So I was on a big learning curve. But I was also responsible for supplying him props that he was happy with, his personal items in the film. So he had to rely on me to come up with the stuff that he could choose from. And so you you build this relationship with an actor or an actress. and it, um, It's much closer than most people on the set because you have inner reaction with them all the time.
0: Mm-hmm. So... Let's talk about him in more detail because you know I think what Le Mans represents is probably it's it's an example of what Steve McQueen was like as far as he was very um, I, I know I've already used the phrase larger than life but he was very driven and in fact uh, you talk early on about how it was difficult to work with him depending you know he was one of those. People who believed he knew what was best for him, and he was never—he was always willing to fight for what he thought was right, as far as he was concerned. So, what kind of? How did he seem, from your knowledge of his work? um, What was so special about Steve McQueen?
1: You know what I what I try to do in in our book is tell you uh, from the inside what it's like from day one making a movie and how it is to work with a, a movie star or a director or a producer um, and all the intrigue that normally takes place on a set. This film was different, mainly because it was Steve's passion project and he wanted to make it for 10 years. He didn't have the clout to do it before. It, this followed Bullet, a huge success, and um, he was hot like I said at the time the film only became available to Cinema Center who produced the movie and a turnaround from Warner Brothers who some, for some reason either had a crystal ball and knew the film was going to be a lot of problems or just decided they didn't want to invest in the project but
0: it was inherited
1: by Cinema Center who thought they died and gone to heaven. They got the number one box office star in the world in a racing film his passion, uh, after Bullet was probably the best car chase ever filmed, so they thought it, they had a no-brainer. The problem was Steve had not mind making a different film than the studio. Uh, he wanted to make more of a docudrama, if, if you will, a real racing buff's picture. He had just come off the success of, on any given Sunday, which made a lot of money, and it was about motorcycle racing. So he never came to terms with the studio, or the studio never came to terms with him on a script. So we started with a very, very rough outline. We brought in John Sturgis Durek, who had a great history with Steve. All the elements were in place, except the most important one, the script. Right. And that never came into play, never came into really uh, focus. I think the book outlines um, how lost you can get and how hard everybody works on a set to make a film. And when you don't have the right uh, piece of paper to look at that you know you're going to shoot the next day, it's really uh, uh, every day's a mystery, and every day's uh, a change of something you could not, could not have anticipated. We went on for seven months over there before we finally wrapped the picture. And... Uh, I think I say in the book, it's one of the few pictures I've ever been on that at the end of the last shot, everybody doesn't go, look, great, nice working with you, have a wrap party, and go go on to your next project. Everybody over there just kind of said, thank goodness it's over, we're out of here.
0: Yeah, I know it it is interesting sometimes when you read about films, including films that ended up becoming huge successes, to discover that the script is not as (laughs) complete or as, well-rounded as you want to think, especially with the final results. And in this particular case, not only was there issues with the script, but of course, as you just pointed out, McQueen had a different idea of the film he wanted in the first place. And given that he was so uh, powerful as as an actor and, and as a even producer at that point, he had a lot of con- you know he was able to exert a lot of his control over over what happened.
1: He was until the studio finally had enough. John Sturges just had enough. He actually just left the picture one day. Never even said goodbye to the crew. He just told the producer he was going home. And the producer thought he was going back to the hotel. John got on an airplane and flew back to L.A. <laughs> so we were then we we're without a director, a script, and a cooperative actor. And that's when the studio said, okay, that's enough of this. If we're going to make this picture, we're going to make it our way. Steve, you no longer have control are taking it all away from you if you want to make this film. If you want to walk off, that's your prerogative. Bro- but he had so much invested in himself and time, reputation, that he decided to stick it out. And uh, it wasn't smooth from then on. They brought in Lee Katzen to direct, And uh, Lee and Steve did not hit it off right away, to say the least. Uh, Lee was more of an Ivy League guy. He liked to wear a sport jacket. And his fight made did tap of around his neck. and He was a motorcycle guy and car racing guy, and it took them a while to um, respect each other, I would say. But again, the book, uh, Le Mans in the Rearview Mirror, really does depict all those situations and how it came together and how it ended up. Um, I've done a lot of films, over 30 films in my career. Um, This one probably has a as big an afterlife as any film I've ever done. People still see it, talk about it, buy it. Um, And it's got some of the best racing footage ever filmed. It was way before CGI, Um, so it's real. It looks real. Um, I'm not a fan of going to a movie and watching uh, computer-generated, to me they're like video game sequences. Uh, Even though they're better than they used to be, they still don't look real. And you know what they're doing is impossible. So in our film, everything you see, you can you can really feel like you're part of it and watch it unfold.
0: How different was it from other racing films during that period? I mean, obviously there had been films about racing before, or films that contained races or that kind of thing. But obviously, we know that um, this film in particular contained footage from the actual race itself. The the, the uh, the 1970 race I think I think that's right that, that, that was filmed that there was a lot of footage that was reco- that was filmed that actually ended up into the final cut of the film
1: you know we um, we did shoot the 1970 race and um, we actually first time at that point we got a car we bought a 908 Porsche and had our key grip Galen Schultz Mount cameras, uh, two aft and one forward, uh, Airflex thirty-five millimeter cameras that were triggered by the driver with a switch on the on the driving uh, on the steering wheel. And what happened is uh, they allowed us to enter the race after we qualified with all the weight and all the specifications. And uh, that car uh, got some incredible footage during the race. Uh, which nobody had ever been able to get before. But after the race, we had a whole stable of Porsche cars, Ferrari cars, Matras, you name it. We had 20, I think it was 26 cars that we could use to restage the parts of the race we needed to. Steve actually drove uh, at over 200 miles an hour, and some of those shots with cameras mounted right in his face. I don't know how he did it. We had cameras mounted uh, all over the car that were... Externally mounted, because they weren't going to be filmed. Just filming the car, uh, the driver, and what was going on in the car, which is some amazing footage. This is way before GoPro or any of those little cameras now, where everybody has one, either on their helmet or their wrist or their belly somewhere. This was all 35 millimeter, wonderful footage. We got a, we had a, uh, bought a Ford GT40, made a camera car out of that. They would go alongside the cars and got some amazing footage there. So the racing footage, I don't think will ever be, uh, nobody will ever make another film that's going to be this good. And that's what the film's life is all about. People, you're going to see a romantic love story, you're not going to like Le Mans. You're going to see an exciting race picture, you're going to like Le Mans.
0: Yeah, I know, and reading the um, plot, <laughs> reading the uh description of the plot there there isn't much of what we would call a real plot there i mean there's a story but it all obviously um, revolves around the race and that be, the, the race becomes the, the most important character so to speak the race is a character you know everything is involved in that so uh, including there's a in the movie you know in the story there is a part right in the middle of the race where there is a stop where they can, because of an accident, where you get some more plot, but then get back to the race. Uh, The good thing is is that the the race becomes the most important aspect of the whole story.
1: Right, and that's what Steve really wanted. He wanted a, a picture that would be document the guts and the glory of the actual race driver himself. And they were wonderful. We worked with the top race drivers in the world. We had... Uh, 22 or 3 that were on the set every day. Uh, even the ones that were active, they would leave for weekend races and come back on Monday and work with us all week. People like Jack and Joe Sefer, Derek Bell, Brian Redmond, um, Pedro Rodriguez. And wonderful guys. I got to know them. I probably got to know them better than I did Steve because they were more accessible all the time on the set. Steve would take off and to his dressing room. A lot of times with a pretty young lady who was visiting the set, so we wouldn't see Steve for an hour or two. But uh, the other guys were always there and very accessible. I got a chance to really get to know them, and I I went to dinner with them. And and unfortunately, many of them are now dead from racing,
0: Did they Were they people you depended on to help you with your work, or or was it more of a matter of them being... Ex, you know, being there to to assist, but did did you feel like you that, that they became you became dependent on them to help you do some of the work you had to do, especially without much knowledge of auto racing?
1: Um, not in, in the sense that I think you're indicating. I did at the beginning because I asked him a lot of questions about what would be right for Steve as his character, Michael Delaney. What kind of watch would he wear? What kind of patches on his? driver's uniform, uh, what kind of personal would he have, an ID bracelet, all the kinds of things that these guys did. And Steve very much wanted to look like them. So I was able to get the stuff they wore, the different ones, the watches, all the patches, all that stuff laid out and let Steve look at them and look at pictures of his favorite drivers and try to come as close to that look as possible. And that's how he ended up uh, wearing the the Hoyer wristwatch, which has a life of its own now. But at the time, it was just another watch I showed him, um, along with uh, the Omega Moonwatch and Rolexes uh, to choose from. Uh, He wanted to wear the Hoyer patch on his driver's uniform because Joe Sifford wore it, and he liked the look Joe Sifford had. And that meant that Joe was actually sponsored by Hoyer. Of course, he wore a Hoyer watch, which was only natural, not only because they gave him the watch, but because he was being paid to do so. Well, when Steve picked out the Hoyer patch, they picked up the Omega watch, which, which is the watch they had just worn to the moon, the they nicknamed it the moon watch. He said, I want to wear this, it's a beautiful watch. And I said, Steve, I don't think you'd wear that if you're wearing the Hoyer patch. It's kind of contradictory. So he said, oh, okay. So I went over to the Hoyer watches, and I had four or five different beautiful Hoyer chronographs laid out. And I thought he'd pick up one that looked very similar to all the others, but he picked up the square-faced, blue, blue square-faced watch with two white dials, which was extremely bold, stood out, you know, among all the other watches, which surprised me because he was not trying to make a statement of the watch. Mm-hmm. In any case, that's what he chose. So I was able to get a hold of the Hoyer company in Switzerland. I actually talked to Jack Hoyer, who was the uh, president of the of the company, and um, he was more than happy to supply the watches for the film and, and other timing gear I needed. Very helpful. And at the end of the film, um, I, I asked Jack what he wanted me to do with the watches I had left, and I had several because I knew Steve was unpredictable about returning his props sometimes. I was warned by his makeup man to get several of whatever Steve used personally. So at the end of the film, I ended up with four of those watches, And Jack said, if you want them, just send me a couple hundred bucks. Well, that was a steal back then. But it turned out it really was a steal because
0: the last one of
1: those four watches sold at auction at Sotheby's, uh, I think, three or four years ago, for $650,000. And
0: just because of the watch, it had nothing to do with the film. It was the watch itself.
1: Well, it it had everything to do with the film.
0: Oh, it was. Okay, sorry.
1: Steve was. And so because Steve worked, it became a tonic. and now it's extremely, maybe the most sought-after piece of memorabilia, certainly, that Steve isn't related
0: to. So let's, as, as far as the book is, now we'll, I want to turn a little bit more towards the book with, with this background. What made you sure. decide that this was a book that needed to be written? I know that's a question that seems, uh, you know, it's just that yeah. sometimes why somebody decides to write a book or start on any project is, is, is very important.
1: Well, during the course of the film itself, I shot a lot of pictures. I, I needed to match different parts of the race. So during the race, I carried the 35 millimeter Nikons around my neck and I went to every position on the racetrack during the 24 hours, the signaling pits, the Mechanical pits, paddock bleachers, the VIP lounges, the Dunlap Bridge. And I shot hundreds of photographs. And then during the course of the actual film, I kept shooting photographs because I needed them for continuity mostly, and some for my just because I like to have pictures of where I've worked. Well, I ended up with a lot of photographs that nobody had seen before of Steve and the race. I showed them to a couple of people, and they said, "There's definitely should be a book." because you've got the photographs to back it up and you've got a great story to tell about making the movie. So I got together with Marshall Terrell, who has done several books on McQueen. Probably the world's leading expert on Steve McQueen now. I think he's done three or four books on Steve. Beautiful books. And I read a couple of them. And Marshall and I talked on the phone, got together. He thought it was a great idea to do a book. So I had the photographs. We got a hold of uh, 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 Dalton Watson Fine Books, who had published one of uh, Marshall's books before. They do beautiful coffee table books, and this lent itself to that kind of a book. So we sat down and started working, and the further we got into it, the more I thought it was going to be a a good project. Marshall really fell in love with it. Um, Then at uh, Dalton Watson Fine Books, did also, so it turned out they they printed this and it's a beautiful coffee coffee table book. Um, it's four pounds, so you get your money you get your money's worth. And, yeah, uh, it, it's uh, beautifully presented and beautifully printed.
0: Sorry about my dog deciding to state his opinion. <laughs> Don't worry, I can. I hope you like it. No, I'll work around that. Well, yeah, because actually I saw my, uh, you know, I was sent a uh, a PDF, you know, an electronic copy so it doesn't really completely come through, uh, you know, when I mean, the te- it was useful for obviously for reading the text, but what was also great about it was the pictures come through even a little bit there too, so it's just unbelievable the quality of some of the pictures. I mean, not now obviously not every single picture in the book is something you took, but uh, there certainly are a large amount of pictures that do a great job of of presenting, um, you know, what was you know both the filmmaking, but also McQueen and the kind of other actors that he was that he was working around as well.
1: Yeah, I, I'm very. Proud. I think I have a almost 240 of my pictures in the book, and like many of them, I haven't seen before. And then, of course, we filled in. with uh, Steve's early career. We've got pictures of my dad, his early career, and my early career. So Through the basically the start of my business, my entry into the film business, to this film, and uh, talks a little bit about a couple other films I did. Mostly, it's mostly about uh, people who like to read books about movies. I think it'll appeal to. People who like to, anything about Steve McQueen, they're going to learn some new things. And people who like racing, hopefully, will also enjoy it.
0: So where did you, I mean, obviously, as you point out, so many of these pictures are and are other material in the book are, are from you. But where did you find some of the other materials? Were, were there things that you had known about, or were there, did you do some investigation once you started working on the book to find more material?
1: Well, a big blessing for me was that Marshall had done these other books on Steve. He did one called The King of Cool, which is a beautiful coffee table book. He also did one with Barbara McQueen with a lot of her stuff. So he had access to some pictures I didn't have, and um, he was able to um, negotiate to use a few of the pictures that he or he owned or that he borrowed from other people. Um, I, I didn't realize in writing a book, my first attempt at this, there's such a collaboration going on between all the authors that are involved in the same subject matter or the same person. At other times, um, so everything we have in the book is um, all—it's all Steve. It's all real, or it's or it's the race, and I'd say about ninety percent of it is mine.
0: Where does this film, you know, in your mind, uh, where does this film rank with films that you've worked on? Obviously, you've already pointed out pretty clearly that, that the entire crew was perfectly happy when it was over, but in mind thinking over it over again, I mean given the the work that had to be put in to to make this film, given how involved it was, where do you in your mind this many years after its release uh where is it in your mind as far as your personal work it was
1: it was for me it was another stepping stone I was thirty one years old. Um, I had just finished a really big picture, the one um, I told you about with Arthur Penn called Little Big Man. So I was in, in, the, in the film industry, technicians are somewhat like actors. You, they look at your history, what you did last. Was, it, was your work in it good? We want them to do our project. So it was a stepping stone for me. I came back from Le Mans, um, very proud. I had done the film, uh, really a nice on my resume, a nice notch in my resume. So I went on to do some other really great films. I did uh, the Tiger with Jack Lemon. Um, I, I worked with Gene Wilder a couple of times. Um, I, I made some terrific what I thought were great scripts. that didn't turn out to be great movies, but I, my part was fine. So for me, it was, uh, it was um, a great opportunity. Um, it's not in the favorite film I ever did, I did not have the most fun on it. I probably worked as hard as I ever worked in my life. Uh, I ended up having to take over for the production designer who fell ill and ended up in the hospital and left the picture. So I had my duties and his duties because Steve refused to do a few shots during the actual race that we had scheduled to do. We were uh, burdened with having to reproduce a lot of the paddock area which is the area behind the pits where all the support vehicles are. Uh, we had to uh, re- recreate the whole apron of the r- race before uh, before the race where all the pilots or race drivers walked down in front of the crowd to get in their cars, for all the mechanics, all the photographers, all the people. We missed an opportunity to get shots with literally 50, 60, 70,000 people in the shot because Steve wouldn't do it because he felt it wasn't fair to the audience to pretend he was going to drive that day when he wasn't driving. It was was an ego thing. It uh, made the film very difficult for me and for the rest of the crew and the studio, of course, it cost a lot of money. So those are the kind of things that I really detail in the book that I think people might find interesting.
0: Yeah. One of the things, what I found at the early part of the book, and I didn't know this obviously, but, And you pointed it out very early on that the two possible directors the film had the two two people who were considered as possible directors for this film, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. Um, That's an interesting concept, given that what both of them have have done, have have done in the rest of their careers, can only imagine what might have changed had they ended up on this film.
1: Yeah, that. The, the reasons were probably pretty valid at the time. They didn't go with either one. Uh, neither one of them had huge track records. Obviously, we, we knew they had talent. But Steve probably would have walked all over them. or I don't know if they would have run out. We don't know how strong they would have been. But it probably he needed somebody that he went in knowing their track record and respected. And that's why they went with John Sturgis. However, it didn't turn out well. At the time, it seemed like the right choice.
0: So, how how do you feel the film? What what has happened since then to have changed this film to now be much more well regarded than it ever obviously was when it first came out when it was first released? What what has changed to make it the cult film it now is?
1: You know, I can't I can't say for everybody. In my opinion, it's partly its reputation of being having some of the best racing footage ever shot. Um, people put it up against films like Winning with Paul Newman, a Grand Prix um, that were excellent films, good stories, uh, beautiful stuff, uh, different kinds of cars, of course. But um, I think people people who like this, you know, action films that are real, this certainly fits in the top. People still... Listed in their top ten racing films, and I can understand why, um, because they're not taking the effect that it's it's kind of boring except for the racing. Uh, it's, it'll, I think it'll live forever. It's still being shown, of course, on Turner Classic Films and, and various um, networks. Show it once or twice a year. You can catch it. They now put a Blu-ray copy on DVD out. Uh, it's worth looking at. I bought it. Um, You got to remember, there's there's no dialogue in the film for the first thirty minutes, I believe, Um, just narration. They set the film up very well, but they did it so slowly that I think people got distracted or bored. But by the time you get to the real race, it's you feel like you're there. You understand why you're there.
0: Yeah, because I think you're right. I mean, well, even alone racing as a concept, people. Even these days where you can see auto racing all the time on television, but just the concept of this, spe- this race in particular, it's, it's not just speed, but it's also so much endurance because it takes, you know, it's a 24 hour race. And, um, hopefully by, because you used actual footage from the previous years, you know, a, a, an actual race, I would think that would come through as well. That just that aspect of, you know the endurance necessary to 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 do a race like this.
1: Uh, and you know, you never know what's going to happen in that twenty-four hours, weather-wise, uh, accident-wise. Uh, anything can happen, and usually does. We had we end up having rain a couple hours into the race, which was fine when we we're shooting the race live. But when it came to recreating parts of the race, we had to, of course, recreate what was actually happening because we're using footage from the real race. Um, the cars that we had, uh, a nice table, like I said, a really nice, fine racing cars, uh, every day, depending on the hour of the race we were shooting, had to match the actual footage. And they changed dramatically. And um, how dirty they are in the daytime and the first start, the headlights are taped to help the check, protect the... Uh, shield on the headlight, and then when it becomes night, they take them so they have full vision of the lights. So all those things, details had to be set up every day for the hour we'd be shooting. And the cars would come in to me after they shooting that day. I would be told what they thought they were shooting the next day. Not for sure, but I would have to get the cars prepared for that particular moment in the race, which was a huge, huge uh Uh, detail that we had, it was very difficult to do, you know, the cars had to be sometimes repainted, re-decaled. maybe uh, one car had some damage to it, we'd have to match that, and then turn around the next day and have them back at a different time in the race, so we certainly didn't shoot in continuity, we couldn't, and uh, that was, I had a crew of 14 people working on cars all the time.
0: So did, you, did, did the film give you a new appreciation for auto racing?
1: Oh, yes, certainly. I really, I really. the first thing the studio did when they hired me to do the picture, was I told them I didn't know anything about this race, this kind of racing. I'd gone to a couple of drag races, and that was about it. And they had a production, Bob Rosen, who hired me. But don't worry, you'll figure it out, because that's what you do in every movie. You know, I didn't know anything about it. In, Crow or Cheyenne Indians until I did a Little Big Ben. I, the first thing the studio did was send me to Belgium to, to the race at Spa, which is an endurance race, a 12 hour endurance race. But I was there as the studio's representative, and we were going to be working with the John Wire Porsche Racing Team, which is sponsored by Gulf uh, Oil at the time. So I arrived couple of days before the race, got a chance to watch some of the tryouts and some of the, some of the early uh, testing. And during the race, I spent the, the whole race in the pits with John Wire, Pedro Rodriguez, Joseph, or Derek Bell, Brian Redman, all these top race drivers. And since I was there as a film guy, I was accepted right away. I wasn't just a, a visitor, an outsider. I was part of it. And they seem to do that a lot when you come, come in representing a film company. It's happened in different circumstances with me. So not only did I get to see racing close, I got a chance to talk to the people. I went to the big party afterwards, which is kind of like a wrap party on a movie where there's not just the racing people, but the, the movie stars, the high rollers, all the enthusiasts that come to these parties. And um, that was my first experience. at at a race and I got to say that's the way to do it because in one day I got an education that might take 10 years
0: did were there things that you learned in this particular pick uh film that you were able to use in future films or was it just more of a just the experience wasn't you know the experience you got just this experience was particularly useful
1: well not not Nothing to do with race cars, right? but because because the job of recreating the paddock with the 50 support vehicles and all the crews for the tire companies and the headlight companies and the champagne people, I had to go to these people and promote this stuff, which wasn't supposed to be there after the race. They all go off to different races, different circuits. All the tire companies have their, their outside trucks with all the equipment. And they're gone. After the race, they're headed for another part of, the, of Europe. So to convince them to come up with another vehicle that matched the one they had with all the crew and all the tires and all the stuff, it taught me um, a lot about promotion and um, trading exposure for the value they would receive. Um, I was able to do that, which was somewhat surprising the studio of course, was thrilled because I probably saved them a couple hundred thousand dollars by getting the stuff for free. And uh, later on, I put that to good use because I started a product placement company, uh, actually the first one in Hollywood, where I would represent various products and place the products in movies.
0: Well, <laughs> so yes, it did help me. It helped you well, obviously, but that was it. I mean it, it clear from from your description first of how you got into the business in the first place because you, they needed people and then you also then brought in your own uh abilities and talents for a variety of things to that that went along. I suspect that was why that period of time was so particularly important for for film for many people because they were able to to succeed. Getting into an area where nowadays and even and before there would have been much more difficult, but you made the most of the of of the ability, you know, of your abilities with what you were able to do. Yeah, so I
1: was, I was very like I said, very fortunate to be at the right place at the right time throughout most of my life. By the way,
0: well, you also the good thing is you had a pedigree too, which helped as far as that was concerned. But you also you know, you still had the talent too. And that I think goes along people. I agree with the right place at the right time, but the good thing is people who are at the right race at the right time, right place often make the most of it. And that's a good thing. Um, Have you considered writing about any of the other films you worked on or do you feel like this was a a special project that deserved its own uh, uh, part? You
1: know, I, I, definitely considered it. Uh, in fact, I sat down and wrote a oh, uh, pretty extensive outline uh, because I, I, have a, I have a lot of films that people might in find interesting to know something about. Um, I even came up with a title uh, for the second book. I don't know if I'll do it, but it's tentatively called Singing with Brando and Writing with McQueen because I've worked with all these people and I have some great photographs from The Ugly American uh, working with Marlon Brando. And um, I have photographs on all the pictures I did, uh, which I think people would find photographs always seem to uh, what people wanna see in movie books. And uh, I think I might have an audience. Uh, I'm gonna think about it a little more. This is such a a two and a half year project, Uh, intense, pretty intense, and I'm going to take a break. I'm not going to do it right away. And I may have to have somebody encourage me because I'm not positive I wanted to do
0: it. Well, I think as a, one of the things that comes through quite well in the book is, yes, um, all the backgrounds there, but the photos, I think, really just do add so much because you talk about a particular or, – or you and in, in your, in your, the two of you talk about a specific aspect of what was going on, and then you show the, the pictures, and it just becomes – very uh, s- stunning to be able to to almost feel like in many ways you understand better what was going on just from the photos and some of the other material. Um, and, of course, Steve McQueen, and as I say, I, it, it's interesting that, of course, since it's been so long since obviously any films, uh, that he still has some films out there that are still well regarded and well known. So it's good to know that uh, even some of the lesser known ones are like in this particular case a film that uh, – didn't do as well is still being noticed because uh, uh and, and as you point out uh the background of what was going on in his life forget just the filmmaking his his whole life was was uh going crazy at the time too of course you get the impression that was the way he lived anyway with things just sort of being very uh constant and moving and stressful in many ways but you can see that in in your book about what you know what was going on with him as well
1: yeah i just i really hope people will give it a chance to, i hope they can find it and read it um, and i'd love to get feedback after people do that to see what they thought about the whole idea of writing this book and whether they appreciated what i said or not because i don't paint steve in, the, in a very rosy light i think in, in a very realistic uh, what was going on in his life he, he was, as you know, was, uh, by reading the book, he's going through a divorce. He found out he was on the Manson hit list. Uh, he owed the IRS tons of money. He had a falling out with uh, John Sturgis, his producers, his friends that have been with him for years. So there's so much going on behind the scenes in this uh, book that it's kind of amazing to me that we were able to get a movie at the end.
0: Well. But I think that's probably the drive not only of him, but also everyone else that was working on it. <laughs> it sounded like you all felt like you had to finish it, given what you all went through to make it. Uh, it wasn't something anybody wanted to just stop, although it, I can see in a lot of spots where it could have ended up where the whole thing would have been scrapped. But thankfully, it didn't get scrapped. So um, that's what I say. So, hopefully, as you point out, hopefully people will look out for this book. As I say, the the coffee table aspect of it is very beautiful, but the, you know, the rest of it, you know, the, the, the story that's, that's in the book as well is presented so well with, the, with the images and, and everything else. So it's definitely worth uh, reaching out for, especially people who are interested in films during that period, the, you know, 60s and 70s uh have some so many interesting films that came out of that period, partly for some of the reasons we've already talked about. So I'm glad that you had the ability the chance to to tell this story because I think it's it's a, just another great story from that period of time. Well
1: thank you. And um, go look for Steve McQueen, Le Mans, in the rear view
0: and mirror. Well thanks for talking to me Don. I really enjoyed our discussion.
1: I did too. I appreciate your time and Uh, Good luck with the show, and I look forward to hearing it.
0: My great thanks to Don Nunley for his time. Lamont has seen a resurgence in interest, and Don's book is a great companion to the film. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more new books in film.